0: And hello, this is Radio Free Canada. It's September 24th, 2017, and I'm your host, Kevin Annett. Before today's show, I've got an important announcement to make. After today, the program called Radio Free Canada will cease broadcasting. But in its place, commencing next Sunday, October 1st, there'll be a new program called Here We Stand, which will be broadcast live every week at the same time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on this station. Through Here We Stand... We will be making a transition to a higher level of understanding and action in the unending battle to reclaim our liberty and our world. Let me explain. Two and a half years ago, we launched Radio Free Canada to continue a battle that had spanned two and a half decades, first in Canada and then around the world. That fight was for most of that time a defensive one a long struggle to expose unspeakable crimes against children by church and state, and then to demand justice and accountability from the very system that caused those crimes. But we learned through practice that neither the perpetrators of these atrocities nor the institutions responsible showed any remorse or capacity to change. On the contrary, they did everything possible to conceal our ongoing crimes and destroy those like us who were exposing them. And so from our own experience, we were forced to overcome our conditioned need to look to our oppressors for change, and instead, we had to become that change ourselves. And so we began to turn the tables on the criminals in power. We seized their churches and offices. We named the guilty, and we put them on trial. We forced Canada to admit its crimes, and we forced Pope Benedict and four other Vatican child killers to resign from their offices. We began to disestablish their power and reclaim our own by creating a new jurisdiction and authority under the common law. We denied so-called crown authority and proclaimed the Republic of Canada. And we launched this radio program as its voice. In other words, over the years we have moved beyond mere protest and commentary and gone on the offensive against a murderous global system. We have helped to launch a revolution that is reclaiming our minds, our lives, and our world for we the people. First, by actively saying no to the thing that is killing all of us. So now we're at a great crossroads in that battle because of the enormity of the institutionalized evil that we face, an evil that few of us really understand and to which most of us remain enslaved. We must move to a higher ground of awareness and action to combat and overcome this power, starting by breaking the shackles it has over us, personally, spiritually, and politically. And so instead of remaining a restricted public affairs news program, we're creating a new platform that we call Here We Stand, an explicitly revolutionary tool that will delve deeply into the real nature of the enemy we face and inspire and mobilize the remnant of people who are overcoming and displacing that adversary. That sacred remnant of fighters has been given the task of bringing to an end the murderous global corporatocracy and the spiritual force behind it and forming a new covenanted society of equality and liberty. Our aim on here we stand will be to unite that remnant, towards its historic task of ushering in a new society, according to the mind and law of God. The name of our new program is a remembrance of our free radical tradition. For five centuries ago, on October 31st, Martin Luther launched the Protestant Revolution against Roman tyranny, a revolt that led to the establishment of freedom of conscience and political and spiritual liberty across the world. When ordered to renounce his views, Luther hurled back at his papal enemies the statement, Here I stand, I can do no other. Well, today, as people everywhere battle against the global corporate tyranny spawned from the same Roman institution, free men and women are launching their own revolt with the same defiant spirit of here we stand. A new movement known as the Covenanters has emerged today in Canada, America, England, Scotland, and Ireland that embodies this reclamation, a political and spiritual campaign to undo the genocidal system that's enslaving humanity and destroying our world. Our new radio program, Here We Stand, is the voice of that movement. Some of the perspective and guiding principles of our new covenanting movement are found in a publication from Amazon.com entitled, Here We Stand, Summoning God's People in the Time of Judgment. It's also reprinted at itccs.org. Over the past two and a half years, we've been proud of the high quality of the interviews we've aired on Radio Free Canada. Our program reflected a successful public campaign to expose, prosecute, and halt crimes against children and humanity. The show also sparked the new common law sovereignty movement that's arming people to reclaim their communities with their own citizen courts and sheriffs. In many ways, we created the present global awareness concerning these crimes. Our work has begun the dismantling of the Vatican Incorporated. Here we stand, will build upon and extend all of these accomplishments. And we are directing our new radio program to that remnant of men and women who have been set apart from the escalating enslavement of the human race. In that way, we are like the early Puritans who left their old country to establish a new nation of liberty under a new covenant with God. And so in summary, our ending of Radio Free Canada and the launching of Here We Stand is a transition into a new world, an opening of a doorway to a new consciousness and possibility. We ask that each of you listening today and who will follow Here We Stand search your hearts and minds and make a choice whether or not to stand with us. Write to us at Covenant at gmail.com. You can follow our continued witness at itccs.org and murderbydecree.com. And also you can follow all of the archived Radio Free Canada programs at our new blog site, www.bbsradio.com slash herewestand. Today on this, our final program of Radio Free Canada, we're offering an interview about the disappearance of people on Canada's west coast and how we have to stop those attacks. It's a broadcast from last October, but it's still very pertinent. So listen, learn, and take action. And listen here next week at the same time to our premier broadcast of Here We Stand and to the covenanting vision behind our revolution in the making. May the determination and courage that brought us all together abide with us in the days of decision and struggle are to come. This is Kevin Annett, and I thank you all. That was Bella Ciao, actually going out to all my Italian relatives and friends, to all the Arnati family over there in Italy. Thank you uh, for being you. And Bella Ciao, actually, just to give you some background, that was a song from the Italian resistance during and after World War II. And it's, well, what can I say? It's self-explanatory. I won't add to it. I can't add to it. I'm welcoming you all today uh, to this BBS radio network. Radio Freaking Out is here every Sunday, 3 p.m. Pacific. We're here to liberate minds and reclaim our world. We're not just educating, we're arming people with the truth and training them in the common law and in fighting the psychotic killers who are running the world, in a nutshell. You can follow our work, itccs.org, murderbydecree.com. And today we're starting actually a three-part series looking at one aspect of that psychotic rule, the history and reality of disappeared people in Canada and, by extension, all over the world. A term that the Nazis came up with to describe how they got rid of people and then uh, erased their memory was Nacht und Nebel, which means night and fog. And we're going to look at how night and fog operates in Canada, especially on the West Coast. When we're talking about the disappeared, we're not putting it into the little box that the government is now trying to put it into, a few native women have somehow disappeared and now we're going to go look for them. In the same way they said, well, a few native children were harmed in residential school and now we're going to give some money and forget about it all, along with our little cute apology. No, this is a much bigger reality. The crime of the disappeared is much bigger and much closer to home than we first realized. And you only get a sense of this when you start working with the people on the ground, as I've done for over 25 years, including as a minister in the downtown part of Vancouver, where I personally began to learn about this stuff long before even I contact with residential school survivors. Our guest today is Merv Ritchie. Merv is a veteran journalist from Terrace, British Columbia, which is up north along what's called the Highway of Tears, Highway 16 between Terrace and Smithers, where so many Native women have gone missing. But... The story is much bigger than that, and we're going to look into more of that today. Merv will be on in a few minutes. And uh, leading up to that, uh, I want to, again, remind people to go to ITCCS.org, the Tribunal, International Tribunal of Crimes of Church and State uh, website, ITCCS.org. If you go back to the posting, uh, it's just two back now, it's under September 30th, you'll see there a memorandum that's gone out to governments around the world from the ITCCS, and part of that memo talks about the crimes of genocide in Canada today that disappeared, entire Aboriginal families that are going missing. Now, two points I just want to emphasize out of this that are very relevant to today's discussion, Um, because Merv, of course, is going to get into not only his evidence, but how he's been targeted for persecution by the police and others in Northern British Columbia. Now, the two points in this memo that people have to be aware of is, first of all, there's a continuity of crime. The crimes in the, geno- of the of genocide in the residential school era never stopped, and in fact, they're happening at the hands of the same people. The top leadership of the Anglican, Catholic, and United Churches, along with corporate directors and others, are seriously involved in these disappearances. And secondly, the women who have gone missing, when you look at their history, they often come from the traditional uh, clan-mother lineage systems, which historically were responsible for defining who would own the land and the resources prior to the Europeans come. Now, coming. Now, if you want to wipe out any sense of who owned the original title of the land so you can grab that land, you've got to target these people. And in fact, our theory about this uh, the disappeared is that, in fact, they're political assassinations, They're Native women and others who constitute a roadblock to big Chinese, American, and Japanese corporations and Canadian corporations that want the land, the hydroelectricity, the uranium, the oil, all these things that uh, British Columbia especially is important for, for international conglomerates. So um, please read that memo. It'll give you some of the background. And we also want to look over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at the the whole broader issue of the disappeared. And the one aspect of that, of course, is the continual As I mentioned, there's the night aspect, the disappearance of people, and then there's the fog, the the way you fog somebody's memory so people forget about them. The media in Canada, the academic world uh, especially, have been playing a very key role in that by by fudging the real history. Now, just uh, closer to home, and we're going to get into this next week in particular, where we'll go into more detail about this, but the University of British Columbia
1: in Vancouver,
0: uh, on the campus, is the Musqueam Indian Reserve, and we have an eyewitness, Les Gurin, who was a maintenance man there, who describes how the Musqueam Reserve and three other spots on the UBC campus are, in fact, body-dumping sites. And, in fact, Dave Picton, the brother of the so-called serial killer Willie Picton, was actually employed by the Musqueam Band for two years, and he provided, guess what, a filler for street construction. He brought out all sorts of bags. Uh, and, and soil for that purpose. Now, what's interesting is Les said he saw picked and bringing bags out to the Musqueam Reserve. Les went out and dug up the, the what he had buried, and it turned out to be all sorts of bones that, when he had them analyzed, they turned out to be pig and human bones. Um, he took that information to the Vancouver police, to all sorts of media. He was not only shut out and told not to lick into it, he was threatened, and he eventually had to move away from the Musqueam Reserve. Now, there's a whole other history that we're going to get into, but when you look at um, what the University of British Columbia endowment lands are, they are uh, not part of the city of Vancouver. They're under provincial jurisdiction and RCMP jurisdiction. So if you're looking for a spot to dump bodies and the RCMP is involved in these disappearances, Human Rights Watch in New York has already said that in an official report that the RCMP and other police in British Columbia are directly involved in the disappearing and death of Native women. Now, that's the thing you won't hear in the Canadian media, but that was in the Human Rights Watch report out of New York, and we'll be talking about that next week. UBC is an ideal place for body dumping, and we're going to describe that. When you look at even the, uh, who's on the Board of Governors at UBC, it's the very multinational corporations that have a, v- a vested interest in getting rid of Native people. Stuart Belkin, the chair of the Board of Governors at UBC, a founding director of Timberwest, the largest logging company in the, uh, the province, uh, the UBC Chancellor, Gordon Lindsay, is a former CEO of, guess what, HSBC Bank, the big uh, the bank that was prosecuted by the U.S. government for laundering money for drug cartels in Mexico. And we know drug laundering and traffic, human trafficking and all of that go hand in hand. So, you know, this is some of, of what we're dealing with right in our own backyard. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to get into that next week. That's just kind of a little tease for people just to know that this is going beyond the issues that we'll be talking about today. Now, um, we, uh, I believe we have uh, Merv standing by. Yes, we do. So we're going to go uh, to Merv Ritchie right now. Hello, Merv. How are you?
2: Hello, Kevin. Happy Thanksgiving.
0: Well, happy Thanksgiving to you. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's a, the it's a kind of holiday we should be mentioning around Native people, but uh, it's also an interesting holiday. Seven years ago tomorrow, I was in Rome performing our first exorcism on the Vatican, so that's, that was kind of fun. And... Uh, filled with all sorts of interesting uh, outcomes. So, um, Merv, let me uh, just ask you to give a little intro to yourself about who you are, what you've been involved in, um, that kind of thing.
2: Well, yeah, I can I can go way back, I guess. I, I grew up in a very uh, high-class, upper-class family, a very uh, kind of spoiled uh, upbringing. And uh, in my younger years, I, I walked away from that, and moved out into the bush, and lived on the streets for a little bit. And I uh, ended up uh, working in mines, but I didn't like working in the, living in the ca- mine camps. So I moved out into the bush, first in a, got a tarp to built myself lean-to, then a pup tent, building a wall tent, and somebody told me I should get a teepee. So for the next uh, five years, I learned how to live in the bush in the mountains in the teepee. It was, now, was that up north?
0: Was that in northern BC? That was, a, that,
2: was in, that, was in, that was in southeast BC. I worked for okay. Ford Coal. Um, as a heavy duty mechanic, um, but then I moved up to Tumbler Ridge, North uh, Northeast BC, from Southeast to Northeast BC. I lived all over the place. I attended powwows and thought I knew a little bit about yeah. Indigenous well, life uh, until I moved to Terrace in 2006. Okay, good. and uh, um, I discovered the what's uh, known as a uh, Temlaham or Demlahamet. It's the Territories of the Nishka, the Gitsan, the Simshan, Wet'suwet'en, uh, Haisla, Haida, all the northwest indigenous uh, tribes uh, all come from one core beginning that they tell all the stories from. Uh, I was astounded. I, I realized that I, at that point, really knew nothing about the indigenous life. So th- what brought me up there was uh, a newspaper enterprise and I was asked to set up a newsprint press, um, and then I was asked to run the press. So I ran the press, and uh, then I needed more stories, so I started covering the city council and the regional district meetings and realized that I had to learn all about these different nations that I lived in. Um, terraces in the center of the Simshian uh, nation, uh, Kalem and Kitsula's are the two uh, federally- Appointed band councils that claim their territories there um, but from two thousand six onward to well two thousand twelve thirteen I became intimately involved with all of them and, um I heard all sorts of stories uh about the r c m p taking and abusing uh well i witnessed it i- w- I watched the beatings i you know I watched them chasing people down. I reported on it for years, um, so that's my background comes from a an upper uh white class you know uh, background and uh, I involved myself in uh the indigenous issues quite quite right. intimately
0: now the terrorist daily news that you did you actually set up that that publication and and tell me about some of the things that it covered that got you in hot water, especially with the Mounties.
2: well. Yeah, I ended up setting up the Terrace Daily. We had, uh, I, my brother was a publisher and editor for, uh, uh, Conrad, one of Conrad Black's paper, the Prince Rupert Daily News for years, and then he set up his own newspaper, which, uh, he got me involved in. That's how, that all how I got into the media business from being a mechanic. Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, I, because I came at it without any training, uh, came at it cold from just a, Pure, you know really as a blue collar life after i left home uh, i wrote actually i wrote exactly what i saw i went and did cold interviews and uh named names and immediately got myself in hot water with the business community uh because i was naming how the chamber of commerce was being corrupt uh how the city executives the, you know are uh, um are um in terrorist Chief Executive Officer or Administrative Officer uh, Poole, would be bold-faced lying to the City Councilors, and so I would write that. He'd Go back and repeat the same lie to the Regional District, and so I'd write that. And I know, the Chamber of Commerce President would be making you know erroneous statements, and that and call him out to the carpet. And so, of course, I became incredibly popular, and uh, basically took over all the media. When we started our website, no one else was. Uh, in Terrace, was doing a news website. Uh, the standard Black Press uh, rag, Black Press owns most of the newspapers in BC. That's why most people right. don't get good news. But they they updated their website once a week. Well, we updated our website hourly, and it was a fluke. But in 2007, there was a major flood in Terrace, and of course, we were posting pictures and updates hourly um so people came to our website and so we basically oh. took over the media with our provocative coverage and our our current coverage
0: now i want to so, i want to get into cuz the theme of the show is about the missing women and others uh but i do want you to mention to people how your
2: publication got closed down well that was it was they the many entities and i'm not exactly sure who was cooperating with who um but we were hacked. Our servers, we had our own private servers, and they were taken down twice, uh, about a year apart from each other. Uh, I'd written about, uh, I'd followed the the clues that uh, the director of CSIS left when he was interviewed by Peter Mansbridge, um, Richard Fadden, uh, the director of CSIS. And he talked about the infiltration of Crown Ministries by Foreign government agents, and uh, Peter Mansbridge suggested, was it the uh, China or India? And uh, Richard Fadden wouldn't uh, acknowledge. So, knowing what I've you know, been reporting on the way China was taking all our raw log exports, and they were going after all our raw energy, I went directly to the Ministry of Forests uh, 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 site, uh, you know, their, their political site, uh, Pat Bell's ministry, and found that the exact description that Richard Fadden was talking about, foreign uh, operatives taking senior positions and traveling back and forth to China, was um, fit exactly the bill. The most senior policy analysts in both the Ministry of Forests and the Ministry of Energy, Mines and Resources, Bill Bennett's ministry, were Chinese. They were born in China. And now not to say that they were spies working on behalf of China, but that's what Richard Fadden laid out. They went All to right. school here in B.C. So... Was it China that took down my servers, or was it the BZ government that took down our servers? But anyways, we rebuilt our servers. We got back online. It cost us thousands of dollars. Um, and then after um, the Human Rights Watch report came out talking about the RCMP being behind the missing and murdered women, and after the last provincial election where our Skeena MLA the Liberal MLA lost by just a few votes to the NDP. Uh, the Knights of Columbus uh, went to ev- now the Knights of Columbus. Many people don't know this, but they're the ca- Catholic boys' club. They're like little Jesuits. They're the they're the uh, little operatives. They work in the chambers of commerce, Rotary clubs, and you know they pay attention to everything that's going on in, in their communities. But they work for the Catholics. Specifically, they take directions from the Catholics. Um, they are catholic That's the Knights of Columbus, and they went to every one of my advertisers, bar none, and ordered them to stop advertising. I got a call from Hawk Air, who was, you know, the prime airline up in Terrace. Uh, they'd just given me the day before a brand new ad to put up. They've been advertising with us for, I don't know, maybe eight years. Um, and I uh, got a call saying, you got to pull your ad right now. Right now. And the, the, the woman's voice was shaking. So I just got a call from the Catholics. And that was the first one. The next one was uh, sight and sound. Uh, they, they they were they were approached three times because they didn't pull their ad down right away. Um, the, the Chrysler dealership, uh, Knights of Columbus uh, fellow went in there and said, if you don't pull your ad, you won't see our face in here again. It just went on and on. Um, I lost. And then I got evicted from my home. I got a eviction notice, and I have to move out because the fellow was associated with the Catholic Church. So um, they exerted their power and shut us down completely.
0: Now, I know you said you had written something critical of the election of the Pope or something, but do you think it was related just to that or others?
2: Well, you know, was it? Um, I was very provocative in that writing. Uh, The Pope had not been elected yet. We didn't know. But uh, because I'm such a news hound and I watch everything, for the, for weeks, there is nothing but we are electing our new pope and when will we elect, you know, when will they select our new pope? And this was on CNN's, um, you know, even Al Jazeera, I could our everything new pope. was our, our new pope. <laughs> we are selecting our new, and I was just, I was absolutely furious. And so I wrote this, this article, um, it was blunt it says we will ha- never have a new pope. Um, yeah, and, you know, the Catholics will have a new leader for their cult. But we won't have a new pope. The Catholics will have a new leader. And when, of course, I got called out on the word "cult," um, but really, you know, uh, that's if it's not your dogma, then it's a cult. If it's your dogma, it's not a cult. Right. That's basically the way it is. And so I, I, I in an argument, after, you know, in the comments section on that article, we will never have a new pope. Um, I quoted uh, I. Went to all my dictionaries. I've got a stack of dictionaries that go back to the 20s, um, and I just copied the, all the dictionary uh, definitions of what a cult is, and I listed them all. Isn't uh, exactly what it is, you know. Uh, any any re- following any religious dogma. Right. It's just that we nope. use the word cult now to be uh, to demonize somebody's belief. That's all. And really, that's what the Catholic is. I mean, they, they practice things that aren't Christian. That's for certain.
0: Well, and in terms of the disappearances of people, of course, the Roman Catholic Church led that whole thing, not just in the residential schools, but they've been accounting for the deaths of millions of people at their hands. So, I mean, naturally anybody who raises the question of people who go missing are going to get the ire up of of those who are responsible. So tell me how this relates to your understanding of of what's been going on with the whole missing women investigation and that. I know you have more specific information on that.
2: Well, when the Human Rights Watch report, and I believe you mentioned that earlier, um, when that report came out, the Human Rights Watch report came out, um, I was incredibly pleased um, because it was about time. And I, I wrote a very provocative headline, a Welcome to Terrorists, the Hotbed of RCMP Terrorists. And that was in 2013. You know, they um post media uh not post media it was uh, um well came out by Canadian press um their their headline was mounties raped abused bc aboriginal girls rights watchdog alleges in report and uh i wrote uh, it, it's about effing time a national newspaper chain is finally reporting on what we have been stating for years and and you know, when that when that came out I was critiqued again for publishing at the R C M P pulled press releases from me. Um they told me that our publication was no longer a credible media. Um, it, it, you know, the the attacks against us for publishing um what's been going on just kind of went on and on. Um and just recently I discovered uh i was tipped off by family that there was a uh, uh a court case going on that involved uh numerous uh over a dozen criminal charges against a former r c m p officer uh he was a a veteran RCMP officer i guess uh from what i understand it was twenty five years twenty five years of service in the r c m p and um it, it was covered under a publication ban, so I couldn't. I can't. I can't talk about it. I've already been criminally charged for breaching the publication ban, so I have to be very careful what I say. Um, but I, I, I can say that you know um, this individual had been working up in the North District, and um, my question is always, well, who are his partners? And if this fella, one individual, is facing numerous charges. And they include uh, rape abduction, unlawful confinement, attempted murder uh, you know if if he's got away with this um, well, who are his partners and and why isn't anybody else talking about it and it is under a publication ban but you know, and I will say this I, I you know i don't know what type of trouble i 'll get into, but I know the families um I know the people involved uh we're all you know i 've been there long enough i've uh, um, I've lived with the families. I am very close. Um, So the individual, one of the uh, individuals that made this complaint, uh, well, let let me back up. All people that are involved in this type of an investigation uh, have RCMP handlers. When somebody is being charged with a crime and you're the complainant, they make sure that you attend trial on time. They make sure you're protected and that you're prepared for trial. You know that you always have to have somebody, and this, this is a, This is a, I mean, not all all are bad. They do good things. Um, but this one particular officer who was handling this case um, uh, advised the complainant that um, a publication ban was needed because uh, her life was in danger. Her relatives were threatening to kill her. And so when I'm talking to her, I'm, you know, like, well, what do you mean, like? What relatives, because I know all the relatives and she says well i don't know they're out in the out in this community she yeah. named the community i i better be a little bit careful, but you know and uh, I don't know, but that's what he said,
0: so he was trying so, to get uh, her to he was trying to get her to agree to a publication ban on her own trial
2: right and 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 so then when they went to to get it, of course the, you know they had uh, advised the court that she lived a high risk lifestyle, you know whether it be a drug addict or whatever um but that, you know, if, if this became public, they're arguing to the court that, um, you know, she might harm herself or commit suicide. Yep. or You know, well, that's the inference that they are be making to the court. Um, well, to you, get her say, to acknowledge that they yeah. threatened her life.
0: Can you tell, um, I mean, in terms of talking around something that might get you thrown in jail, um, can you say what judge ordered the publication back?
2: Oh, uh, yeah, Robert Punnett. Punnett? Punnett, yeah. Now, this
0: Judge Punnett, like, has he had any kind of history of harassing you or blocking any things you're trying to publish or anything?
2: Uh, No, but I have published things about his rulings. I covered a large Heisler trial. The elected uh, band counsel sued the hereditary chiefs for slander because they had accused the hereditary chiefs, Chief Jesse, Tommy Robinson. uh, He's passed on now. Um, Hamas Wakas, he's the the only hereditary elder of the group that were sued still alive. Um, uh, Johnny Wilson, uh, uh, Grant, uh, uh, they had sued the band council because uh, Steve Wilson, who was the elected chief counselor, had made a secret deal with Gordon Campbell, our former premier, to hand over her hereditary chiefs as long as uh, they could get their... uh, um, hydro, their, if, if they could get the hereditary chiefs to stand out of the way for the BCUC hearings, the BC Utilities Commission hearings, when the Rio Tinto Alcan wanted to sell power to BC Hydro. If, so the deal was that Steve Wilson would hand over the hereditary chiefs, and then he would get his own hydroelectric plant uh, in exchange. And that oh letter God. was exposed in the media. Um I think Robin Austin exposed it in the BC Legislature. Uh, anyway, then they so the hereditary chiefs held a Hylas Hamas a um, a court in their own um, uh, traditions, and of course the counselors never showed up. But they then uh, charged, you know, charged the uh, the uh, hereditary chiefs with slander, and Punnett was the judge in the case. Um, And he—he, he, I mean, it's, it, it's too far, too much to go into. But I'll say this: yep. it was a year and a half after all the final arguments were heard. It was the trial went on for years. I covered lots, but it was a year and a half when he finally issued his ruling and found in favor of the band counselors against the hereditary chiefs. Big but surprise. in his in his in his ruling yep. he used a precedent that wasn't even available um, when the final arguments were given. So it was a year after um the right. trial had concluded that this precedent was set that he used to make his judgment. So Maybe. a lawyer couldn't have even made an argument against it. Well because you know, it hadn't even so let me just clarify this the same judge who helped, ruled in
0: favor of a banned counselor who was trying to sell out the power of his own people to the BC government through a secret deal, that same judge has issued a publication ban on the reporting of this Mountie who stood trial for harming women. Is that right?
2: That's correct, yeah. Now, now he's, um, I think the first time, this trial, from what I understand, has been going on for quite some time, and the publication ban might have in, been initiated by another judge, uh, but I, I know that it's uh, been followed up uh, and reinforced by Punnett uh, on more than one occasion. So you know, is so, it your yeah, belief that, that, is this
0: you kind of Mountie, uh, who's either face, still facing or is already being convicted, for all, mm-hmm. all we know, is is he being set up as like another Willie Pickton as a fall guy for something? What's your theory about, about this whole thing?
2: well I know we've talked about this before and my theory is no. my theory is that uh you know well maybe if it if it actually does ever become public, then yes, but they're doing everything to keep it quiet um and and then coming after me with all guns blazing um we'll talk about that i mean, I, mean about- I they they well, they, they took out what they call an MLAT. That's a it's an international uh, treaty that's really used for terrorism. It's called the Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty. Um, so now they get all my IP address information, all my access to virtually anything digital online. Um, so they can read everything. I'm sure you know that, Kevin. Our emails have been read. Oh you know, well, yeah,
0: but what you know this MLAT? It, it, what is it exactly?
2: Well it's an international treaty that law enforcement officers can use to they make an application that somebody's uh done something nefarious and we need to get all his internet data so that's what they've done you know i i the the only thing I did um, was take a screenshot of the court registry the provincial government's own website their court registry site of all the charges against this one individual, post it online on my website and on my Facebook page, and then posed the question. I was in Vancouver at the time, so I posed the question: Is this so and so? Yeah. Um, and I had a pretty good idea because it was a relative who called me and, you know, uh, said, you know, this, you know, should be publicized. Um, and uh, I was, you know, I I'd just gone out of back surgery, so maybe, you know, I'd like to use the excuse I wasn't thinking quite clearly. Um, but that's all I did was publish what they'd already published on their own. And, they, and then you know, what what
0: happened to you after that?
2: Well, I was arrested. I was uh, I was um, um, taken. You know, when they as soon as they located me, I was in Vancouver. I, I'm sure they would have arrested me if I was still up in Terrace uh, earlier, but uh, I got pulled over uh, for just a regular uh, roadside uh, check, and uh, they ran my name and and uh, put me in handcuffs and took me to jail and gave me a promise to appear to to uh, to uh, you know, well, promised to appear, and which I did, of course. And, and then recently, of course, uh, they've rearrested me because at the same date and time that I was to appear in court, I was also supposed to appear at the community corrections uh, office. That's kind of like where people go for, for uh, bail or to see their probation officer or something. And uh, uh, I believe I went in there. I'm trying to recall, but they didn't have anything on me. They, just, they just couldn't figure out, you know. But anyway, just uh, uh, two weeks ago, I was picked up and taken to the Vancouver City Jails because and that just
0: happened. Way to back happen in, in w- hmm? that happened to occur when Kate, Prince Andrew and Princess Kate were in town, I believe. Eh?
2: Yeah, the Will and Kate show. Or, yeah, uh, you know the. Will uh, when, Williams, when Tito, sorry, not. Andrew. I was at I was at the Kitsilano Coast Guard base uh, uh, with my campaign bus uh, to uh, promote uh, the standing up for Indigenous rights. Um, and uh, and then they ran my name and held me off there. So what's
0: what do you face you know, now? Do you do, do you when do you have to be in court again? What are they doing to you exactly?
2: Well, I have to appear again the 25th. I have to be back and appear in court and uh, explain why I you know it's like you know it's 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 really it's kind of insignificant. I mean, I could plead guilty and pay a small fine. And I'd be I'd be fine. But I have never been arrested for anything. I've never been charged with anything. I've had a clean record all my life. I'm quite proud that I can travel anywhere in the world. Um, And now if I plead guilty, that makes me a criminal. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not prepared to plead guilty. and I don't care if it's only a small fine. This last one, if I pay them three hundred dollars and plead guilty, you know, that walks away. The earlier one is a much more significant find. But, you know, it's it's the principle, too. I mean, it's, right. it, it seems quite absurd that the RCMP are getting away with a publication ban by threatening the life of an Indigenous woman. Say, so you need to get this publication ban or else your life's in danger. Of course she's scared, yep. you know? Uh, and so I think that that's wrong. They they, they 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 lied to the court, you know, and they lied to the woman. And if in fact her life was endangered by her relatives, and that's what the RCMP have an obligation to do, is to go investigate that, not to get a publication ban to protect one of their own. And that's what this is all about. And you know, it's, it, it's you know, there's there's you know, I, there's an old saying I, I don't know it's quoted by Mark Twain or whatever, but it's a, it's it's not what we know, or it's not what we don't know that gets us into trouble. It's what we know for sure. That just yeah. ain't so. You know,
0: he also had a good we one. know uh, these things. Mark hmm? Twain also said a lie can walk a lie can go halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes.
2: Well, yeah, and it's 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 terrible what I see going on and what I've witnessed. Yeah. I mean, I have a, a numerous RCMP officers as very good friends. Um and, you know, one of them Really wanted to transfer out of the North Detachment that he was at um, because he did not like the attitude, did not like what he was living with, Um, and I I recognize that in some of the officers. The I you know, uh, you many listeners might know about Robert Wright who was beat up by Brian Heidemann, left brain damaged. They used the Terrorist Daily News, my website. Brian Heidemann was a melody was it? Yeah, he was a mounty who, you know, the guy he slammed his there's a video on it, you know, it's uh slammed his head into the concrete and left the guy brain damaged. I've, you know, he thinks he's still going to work. I can go and interview him at the home now and uh he thinks he's going to work tomorrow. You know, he's, you know, he's he, he's can't his cognitive memory's gone. And that's uh, Brian Heideman did that and and uh they used our our uh, news service because Heideman was written up in the small town Justice report by the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, the BCCLA, um, as, as, you know, as, as tormenting the Indigenous people. It, we have a, we have a, a long history of this up in Terrace, and that's what I've been covering, and uh, that's why I'm being so singly targeted, and they really do want to shut me up. And I don't blame them. I mean, nobody wants that negative publicity. Um, Of
0: course, the mature thing to do, do, which we keep telling the government and churches of Canada, is just take responsibility when you've done it wrong, instead of trying to shut up the people who know the truth.
2: Well, you know, it's the same thing in many parts of our society. Even in unions, you have unions that uh, sanction their members. If somebody's on the job and they start screwing things up, the union will take responsibility and, and sanction that member. might even say, you're no longer part of our union. And then there's unions that cover the jerks that mess things up and take, you know, take advantage of the company, it's the same thing. It's it's like the doctors and the lawyers; they're they're all covering for each other. And the RCMP are right. no, you know, they, the RCMP they cover. If, if if RCMP officers, when they see something wrong, and they would report it and expose it, then they, then it would be a different force altogether. But Brian heideman he was one of the ones involved in the steroid use, and he was sharing it with other RCMP and his. In the tariff detachment uh, well there you go i mean these guys are the illegal activity was within the rcmp already uh, right now murph we got about five minutes left here i want you to
0: kind of comment i want your opinion about when we're talking about missing people in, in british columbia um, one of the people i worked with for a while george Browning was a retired native mountie in vancouver and he was the one who first talked about, over 10 years ago, entire Native families going missing, not just in northern B.C., but in downtown Vancouver, and people being targeted. Do you, do you want to, in the next couple of weeks, we want to get into a kind of more detail of what is really behind all these disappearances. What's your belief
2: about what's causing it all? Um, the ownership of territories. And I can speak primarily about Northwest BC. The ownership of territories belongs to specific matriline, specific female-led families. If you can destroy the royal bloodline of particular families, um, they have no claim then to the uh, ancient uh, name that belongs to the territory. Um, in the Demula, uh, in the uh, the Delgamook trial that was a Supreme Court trial that was very well exposed with the Gitxsan and Wet'suwet'en people, but it's the same with the Nishka and the Simshan, the Haisla, the Haida. It's the female line that holds the rights, the legitimacy to the land. And if you can destroy the, the, that lineage, you have, they have no more ownership to their land. So it is my belief. I, I, you know, it, the, Hudson, the, the British government through the Hudson's Bay Company, uh, had full records of what the right lineage was. Um, uh, And so they, uh, it is my contention that they targeted those royal families right from the get-go. And the remnants they're trying to pull off now. I started writing about this royal lineage back in 2009, 2008, and uh, Roger Harris, the former uh, Aboriginal uh, representative for the uh, provincial government, Gordon Campbell's government, then, I I don't know whether he read it or whether he was as clever to follow through as I was, but uh, they're now going to ban councils and getting banned councils to uh, representatives to take the names of these hereditary royal families. And if they can do that and use those names, then they can sign off legitimately on territories that they have no right to to hold or own. So if they can destroy the female leadership, the matriline, then they really do uh, have the ability to take all the land.
0: So you believe that yeah. the, the disappeared, at least a certain number of the disappeared women, are being targeted for that reason.
2: Oh, I have different thoughts about uh, cleaning up the downtown east side just before Expo 86, you know. I think that they wanted to you know, get rid of anything that looked uh, ugly to the world community, or, you know. But, uh, yes, absolutely, this, what's been going on in northwest B.C. specifically. The Simshen is the greatest nation, the greatest indigenous nation on the north coast, so they owned all the waters. You know, the people talk about the Haida. Well, the Haida and the Simshen had great battles, but the Simshan controlled everything on the coast up. They controlled the outer waters of the Nishka. Where Kinkolas is today, that was Simshan territory. The Nishka will argue about it. But that was all Simshan. You couldn't go out the coast without encountering the Simshan nation. And uh, they are targeting them uh, in, in a most brutal manner. When Gordon Campbell took office, he started the incremental treaty process, which got all the individual bands fighting amongst themselves, lakalams and and Kitsumkalem and Kitsulaz and uh, and and uh, so you can keep people divided, you win, right? Everybody knows that, divide and conquer. It's a great game. And they've done that to the Sin peoples. And it's, it's you know they're doing it now to the Gitsan after the uh, delgamut ruling. The government, uh, what's his name? Danny Vanez, he ran the logging industry. Um, he bankrupted the logging industry deliberately and sold everything off so everybody would be in destitution. And then uh, the government started piecemealing money in through treaty societies and uh, now you give all the destitute people fighting over the scraps of cash, um, dividing the, right. the uh, Git people up. The only right. nation that's still really strong right now is the Wet'suwet'en. You know, and, and they're, they're they're united and incredibly strong, and they're you know no pipeline is going to across their territory. And right. you know we can well. only see what's going to happen there.
0: Well, Merv, one other thing about the Simshin is that a lot of them were targeted to be carted off to the Ed- Edmonton. United Church School during the residential school times, the Hyde and the Simpsons oh. were sent over there en masse, sterilized,
2: murdered. We got that all documented. Murdered by decree. You, you know, you know, Kevin, you you you're being targeted as well. I mean, you, you know, uh, I had a great uh, conversation with Sean Swanky, who wrote the great darkening, the war of extermination on the Pacific. You know, it's really a seminal work on the. Uh, smallpox, the deliberate, absolutely without question, deliberate smallpox extermination attempt. Um, but he's made a statement, which is quite interesting, that those of us who have seen this, uh, who investigate it, report on it, and write about it, end up going a little bit crazy. You know, because we... How, how do you... Um, um, how does your brain uh, function... When you realize that all this wealth and benefit and this privilege that we have is based on, you know, the bones of all these people, the ancestors that that we killed off, you know, our, not we, but you know, our ancestors. And, you know, um, it's it's a it's a tragic history. Well, um, we're living.
0: White people are living off the avails of genocide. We're
2: all profit from it, and nobody
0: wants to look it, at it, it, of course. Um, well, it's it's true.
2: Listen, it's uh, it's.
0: I, I want you to come back uh, very soon. We can get into this more. We've only got a few minutes left. I want to play a clip and have a final uh, uh, sign-off. But uh, I want to thank you for uh, today, and I know that uh, more people are going to be rallying behind you after this interview now that they know what you're facing.
2: Well, I'm hoping I'm going to get hauled off to jail again. You know, it's, I've seen the inside of two jails now, and uh, it's kind of interesting, but I don't really want to see him again. <laughs>
0: now, now you told me you were concerned about being taken off to was it uh, Prince George? Remand? Oh yeah.
2: When I, I I'm concerned that when I get back to to um, my hometown of Terrace that um, they will make, you know make up some charge and I'll go to the Prince George Remand Center where they hold people and then somebody's just going to shank me or something because you know I can't seem to keep my mouth shut. You're you're you know?
0: concerned about your life in other words.
2: Well certainly. Why wouldn't I be? I mean that's the only way to to stop me is with a high-velocity piece of lead, really, you know, or some other nefarious means.
0: It. Well, look, brother, <laughs> we're not going to let that happen to, to any of
2: us. So. <laughs> well, you know, you know what I did here, Kevin, before I go? I, I started a new political party with two other individuals up north specifically for this. It's called the Land, Air, Water Party of B.C. We want to take the next election. And the acronym Land, Air, Water, L-A-W, is the law. And it's specifically to stand up for indigenous rights. Um, and to expose these things, but to be honest, truthful, and reasoned. You know, okay. we need to you have personal thinking skills. You got to wear. Yeah, thelawparty.ca. Okay, good. That's for the Law Party. And, of course, Merv, you, you know, 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 my own at the Terrace Daily is.
0: Merv, thank you, brother.
2: provocative stuff.
0: Thank you. All right. We're going to have Take you on care, again Take care, Kevin. Soon. Thanks for the call. Thank you.
2: Okay, enjoy.
0: Hey, you too, brother. That's Merv Ritchie, a, a very brave man and a truthful man. We're going to have him back on soon. Uh, I want to play for you, before the end of the show, two audio clips. One featuring George Brown, that uh, RCMP officer who uh, we'll talk about next week more, uh, involved in the Community Task Force and the Missing People that I was part of 10 years ago. Also Charlotte Stewart, uh, both of them residential school survivors. Charlotte was Simshin, and I'll let them speak for themselves. This is from the... uh, in response to requests from people that they hear more of the testimonies from our common law court case into genocide in Canada, which you can see at itccs.org. For folks who want to listen to all of these audio clips, they're up at www.itccs.org. Top of the page, case number one, the crime of genocide in Canada. There's three and a half hours of online testimonies, documents, people's you know, in their own words, describing these crimes in residential schools and how they're connected to what's going on today. And um, we're going to carry this on for the next two weeks, the whole issue of disappeared in Canada, especially on the West Coast, partly in response to this uh, bogus government inquiry that's going on right now. And, um, you know, once again, going to the RCMP for help when they are often the ones responsible for these disappearances. Certainly played George Brown Uh, because I want you to hear his words. He's a survivor. But also, years ago, I worked with him in the downtown east side. We documented for the first time how these missing women were actually from the blue blood clan mother lineage that um, Merv talked about a few minutes ago. And it's definitely part of the bigger genocidal agenda to get the lands and resources. So we'll hear these uh, two voices, and then we'll be back after that. Now, still today, Aboriginal women are being forced to be sterilized by welfare and government workers across Canada. Charlotte Stewart describes what happened to her in 1983 in Vancouver, in Video Exhibit 49.
1: My name is Charlotte Stewart. I'm from Kekatla, B.C. I am Jim Nason. I had a daughter 30 years ago, whose name is Patricia, and she was apprehended. And after she was apprehended while she was a baby, I got pregnant when she was in the foster home. And the ministry found out I was pregnant, and they told me to have an abortion. And after I have the abortion, to have a tubal ligation so I won't have any more children. They said if I didn't... Didn't um, have a tubal ligation, then I would never see my daughter Patricia again.
0: Who told you that?
1: Uh, a social worker named Sally Heather. She was at uh, government office in North Vancouver. It was in the summertime. I can't remember what month, I think it was in July, and Patricia was born in 1982, so it would have been about 1983. She was about a year old.
0: Behind the routine rape and torture was a constant aim of terrorizing and degrading Indian children, often resulting in their deaths. Former RCMP officer George Brown describes his friend's experience of being flogged at a Catholic Indian residential school in British Columbia in Exhibit 68. He was punished in a residential school uh, where he had 60 lashes on his back from a strap. And he said, "Um, you're probably wondering how I know that, George, he said,
2: because uh, the kids had to count out the lashes on his back and he said he thought that was bad he said my buddy got it three hundred times and he said uh, the only reason why the sister had quit he said is because she was too tired she couldn't wail anymore and two weeks later that young boy died
0: and we're back uh... well um, next week and the week after we'll be continuing this discussion with more guests about the disappeared we're going to be looking specifically into crimes in our own backyard the example of the University of British Columbia, the body-dumping site nearby, Les Gurin, one of the eyewitnesses who found the bones, what happened to him, and um, also the hard evidence of the complicity of academia, the media, and others across Canada in the concealment of these crimes. So I want to thank you all for tuning in again, and uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, this is uh, tomorrow, the seventh anniversary of when I went to Rome and called down the truth on the Vatican, and it was very interesting, that first exorcism, um, the next day, not only did a tornado hit the center of Rome, but the first reports of the complicity of Pope Benedict in covering up child abuse and child trafficking in the Catholic Church at first hit the European media that week. So what we do does have an impact, folks, and I want you to never lose hope and faith in that. I want to thank you all for tuning in today. Follow our work at murderbydecree.com, itccs.org. Write to us, Republic of Canada. K A N A T A Republic of Kanata at gmail.com. And until next week, stay strong and clear. Thank you all.